Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelance and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Tonight, we have such an awesome guest. She has been an anchor on ESPN Sports Center and has also made several appearances on ESPN Radio. Currently, this guest has started a podcast called The Next Chapter, in which this guest talks to a wide variety of athletes about what it is like transitioning to the next part of their lives after the final whistle. The project is part of the athletic platform. Please welcome to the pod, Prim Sripapat. Prim, thank you so much for doing this. I have wanted to get you on for a while. This project is awesome. Well, let, let's just get started right away. I mean, how did this project come about? Was it an idea that, um, you know, you thought of internally? Was it a brainstorming session with friends? How did it all come about? Yeah, I guess like, you know, this process has been, it's been really long and I think I would probably have to take it back to about five years ago. Um, I've always had a passion for psychology, and I've always had a passion for sports psychology, um, really ever since I was in college, was actually what I studied, but five or, I would say five or, five, five or six years ago, I was really trying to launch a concept about the mental side of sports, and there's so many different kinds of ways you can approach that, um, and so I actually launched my first pod with, while I was at the FPN in 2015 called Inside Out. And back then, you know, the landscape, we were still open to the psychological aspects of sports. Mental health was still kind of a new phenomenon and new concept. So, um, and I was, I was also, I still had some growing to do. So that lasted about a year. It kind of went, you know, it went kaput. But then I started diving into other things, and it's just been an ongoing process from that original podcast to feature stories to then my tennis comeback a documentary, pitching this idea um, to so many different places, and then finally, you know, the time and place was right, and we spoke to the athletic, and it was just just perfect time, right place, right time, and so how that's how it really all started, but as you know, the concept is very personal to me, it's something that I really, um, I really went through and I really struggled with. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a little bit. Um, I want to ask you, the spectrum of issues that you have come across um, with the guests you've interviewed, whether the ones that have already been released um, as well as the ones that have not been released yet, is there some type of commonality there that, that you're seeing when you're talking to these people? Uh, there's no question about just the loss of everything. Number one, the loss of identity. There's also the loss of community in terms of transitioning away from sport, especially at the elite levels. Um, obviously, we want to put everybody in this conversation, whether it's high school, collegiate, or professional. But I think once you start getting to the D1 and also professional and Olympic level, um, because there's just, the the requirements are so much more stringent and tougher, and the dedication goes, um, the hours are a little bit longer, they also play and compete a little bit longer and well into their 20s and 30s. So the the fall from sport is is a bit more precipitous versus an athlete who say, um, you know, just played in high school and then they didn't play thereafter. But I would say, you know, it's just there's a loss of identity. There's a loss of community. There's a loss in the feeling of sense of purpose in life. And so from that loss, during this period of transition, there will be a number of ways that 
you'll see a lot of the retired athletes cope. Um, and those coping mechanisms can manifest it well, itself in a number of ways. Um, but depending on how severe the transition is, and, you know, to be honest, there are some, some athletes where the transition goes very smoothly, but I would say for, for the majority, there is this level of adjustment and it could manifest itself in a number of coping mechanisms. Yeah. When you first announced this project on Twitter, I shared a quote with you. Um, and it's a quote that you and I have, have talked about several times since mm-hmm. I first shared that quote. And it's from Andre Agassi. And the quote is, he says, athletes spend 100% of their time preparing for one-third of their lives and 0% of their time preparing for the other two-thirds of their lives. And this quote resonates directly to your project, and it seems, the, the conversations that I've heard on your episodes, the athletes that are having an easier time with the transition are those that start exploring other avenues you know, while they are still playing. And Andre had his foundation that he started when he was still playing, and that's just an example. Um, that quote was just, as soon as you announced it on Twitter, I'm like, this is the quote. Yeah, that, that was such a good quote. I'm so glad you tweeted that out because I have this book and I've forgotten about that. He, I haven't read it for a while and I just, that book, I, I love it to death. One of my top 10 best books of all time that are near and dear to my heart. Um, yeah, I think that the hyper-focus, and I've talked about this before during, throughout pretty much every interview, but that hyper-focus attitude and mentality that's required to excel at something, and it doesn't just have to be in sports, it could be at any, you know, art, dancing, um, piano, school, whatever it is, but that hyper-focus mentality that allows you to excel in sport or one certain area ends up affecting other areas in one's life, where there ends up being a, a premature foreclosure on one's identity and also just kind of cuts off the avenue to exploring other interests. So, you know, a lot of the athletes that I think transitioned really well, it it wasn't just that they started to explore other areas during their um, athletic careers. It actually starts very early during their childhood and has a lot to do with how they grew up and also the, the foundation that their families and parents set for them. So that means that when parents are encouraging um, athletes or let's say tennis players to start very early, the important thing to send to the kids is that tennis is not who you are, it's what you do. And to encourage them that, to yes, you can play tennis and you can be a serious tennis player, but also to be a balanced um, and well-developed individual. And so to ensure them that, they are also doing well in school. They also have other interests in music and art and culture, whatever it is. And also making sure they have a social life. And I think those are the things that I really noticed that made a difference in the athletes that were able to transition away from sport much more smoothly than the others. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And, you know, you're doing this project by interviewing other athletes. But this project uh, has a personal touch to you as well. And for those of the, the listeners that don't know, you, know, you were a very, very good tennis player. You moved to Tampa as a young child. You trained at Saddlebrook with the likes of Jennifer Capriotti, Andy Roddick, Martina Hingis, Marty Fish. You traveled with the U.S. national team, eventually finished top 10 in the country in the girls' 18 and under division. You attended Duke on a full, univers- on a full scholarship. 
unfortunately, like what happens to a lot of athletes, the injury bug got to you. Actually, pretty bad. I mean, the number of surgeries you had to go through at uh, a young age was it was pretty bad. So I guess yeah. let me ask you, you know, how did you transition into your professional career? And then you actually, uh, maybe it was, maybe it was you did feel like you didn't get a fair chance to end it on your terms. You actually tried to do a comeback later in your career. So I'll just open it up to you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my transition was, you know, it was weird. And I realized this, that somebody can at least superficially and on the surface seem to treat to transition away from sport very well, which is something I did three months after graduating from Duke. I, um, you know, I, I already knew that I wanted to get in the television industry and become a sports anchor, um, or at least try to. And so uh, three months after graduating, I got a job at a local television station in Raleigh, North Carolina, and within, you know, I, I made the jump from intern to producer, sports producer, sports reporter, went from North Carolina, Miami, and I was at ESPN within seven, eight, nine years. So on the surface, it seemed like I was doing really, really well, but from an emotional and mental perspective, I was still really struggling. Um, and I would say like the first several, I would say the first handful of years, it, I was kind of fine. And at that age, I was just so young and um, immature and very unaware of just how to process my own emotions and feelings. I think that's something that athletes are really not good at because we're conditioned to be robots on the quarter field. And so um, it didn't really start surfacing until probably about, I was around 30 or 31 years old, so really about 10 years after I graduated. And that's when I started to realize, like, you know, I've got some health issues. Um, My coping mechanism, I, I mentioned that athletes have a coping mechanism, and my coping mechanism was through an eating disorder. You know, I was, I... I think the thing that I really struggled with in leaving tennis was I had no idea who I was beyond being an athlete, beyond the tennis court. I didn't know how to judge my own self-value beyond my wins and losses um, and anything physically that I could do in the gym after that, and especially not being a student. I didn't have grades anymore. So as you enter the general business world, I was like, I have, no idea, I have no idea who I am, and everything is so subjective. Um, and so, yeah, around 30, 31 years old, um, uh, you know, continuing through my eating disorder, I realized that it was time to get some help, and I couldn't figure this out on my own. So um, that's when I started going to therapy. Interesting. And then, um, like I said, this project obviously has a personal touch to you. Talk a little bit about your comeback. Um, and trying to uh, make it back on the on the WTA tour. <laughs> yeah. So, so this coincided with my uh, with my therapy, and five, six, seven years in, I eventually into therapy. Um, and it's you know I really encourage people. This is something that I really encourage people to do because it's really helped me. And you have to go week after week to to really reap the benefits from it. But five or six years into going to therapy. We eventually made the connection that my eating disorder, my lingering issues were tied to my disappointment and how my tennis career ended, specifically at Duke. So by realizing the cause of my continuing issues, it really like relieved everything and helped me heal. But at that point, then I was like, wow, I realized where my pain is coming from. I can now, for, because for years, I couldn't. And I didn't want to watch or play tennis. 
But that, like, really relieved some of my pain. So immediately I, I fell back in love with a game that I've always loved. And I was like, I would love to do this. And um, try to make a long story short here, but the USTA, when they used to have their um, U.S. Open uh, what was it called? It was the, the, it was the um, U.S. Open, like the open wild card. Like anybody could yes. try to get into qualifying for the U.S. Open, I believe. Yeah. So it's very it was the U.S. National Playoff. U.S. Open National Playoff is what they call that, I believe. Yes, that's what it was. So it's very similar to the U.S. Open, where basically they have like an open field, and anybody, anybody can try to qualify for the real U.S. Open. You have to go through a lot of rounds, and it's nearly impossible. But they, they granted me a wild card to play just for fun many years ago. I declined, didn't want to play tennis, but this time I told my husband, I was like, he's like, if they granted you another wild card, would you do it? And I immediately started crying, and I was like, absolutely. <laughs> and so I shared my journey with my husband, and he was like, him being in the space of advertising media, he was like, you should do a documentary all on this about your journey, because I think a lot of athletes and parents could really learn from this. Um, because my whole goal was, if I'm going to go back and play tennis, I want to go out on my own terms, and I want to do things the right way, because I look back at my experience, and 20 years ago, I just think about, like, how many mistakes I made in terms of just, like, how I trained, how I perceived things, um, how I competed on the court, and so that's, that's how I began, so I went back and played for about a couple years, and it was, um, I didn't win a lot, I will say, David, not a lot of wins, a lot more losses. But more importantly, it allowed me to heal and move on with life. It was, it was so, it was so awesome. So great, so so great. And you know the, <laughs> the the mental emotional part of sports and and just how it affects individuals. It's getting so much more out in the open now. I mean, Marty Fish. You know, we've all we've all known Marty had some yeah. issues in that. He's put, brought that out to the open. Sports in every. I mean. Uh, almost every sport, Kevin Love, I'm, I'm, you can go on and on. Obviously, the people you're interviewing, you know, Noah Rubin is doing, you, you know, the Behind the Racket project, obviously. I mean, yeah. how great, how great is that? I love his project. I think it's, um, I love, especially in, because he's so young. What is he? Maybe like 20, 21, 25? I don't know, but he's fairly young. Right. Uh, definitely much more mature than I was at that age. <laughs> for him to, <laughs> for him to um, continue moving forward with his career, but also to use it as a platform to create and foster discussion about things beyond just sports, but also to do it in such a compassionate way. Um, I think that it, it is just so important, especially during this day and age of social media where you can connect with athletes and fans in a way that you've never been able to before. Um, I, I love seeing athletes do, do stuff like this, um, and I think it's really necessary, especially for the next generation. Yep. I love his project. Awesome. Um, this is awesome. And like I said, I, as soon as you tweeted out about this project, I was all in. I'm like, I've got to listen to every episode. And, and the thing about it is, Prim, and I mentioned this to you as well, um, you don't have to be a sports fan to listen to your interviews because these general principles apply to whatever area you're in. If it's a job loss in you know what, whatever career field you have, it doesn't you don't need to be a, a specific fan of this, uh, of the player that you're interviewing or, or of that specific sport. You can just take these general principles and apply it to everyday life, and it's so, so valuable. Yeah, oh, thank you. And I'm so glad you said that because, you know, I think being in uh, the sports industry and sports broadcasting for now, it's been 17 years, um, and I spent the majority of my career 
crunching stats and looking at the stat sheet and talking about rebounds and field percentage and, you know, all those different wins, losses, ERA, all that other stuff. And that, that's all great. And, um, you know, but to certain, after, I would say, it was probably around, like, 2016, where I started to feel really empty with what I was doing. And that's not to put down what I was doing as a sports anchor reporter, but it just, I felt like there was, um, I could use my platform for a greater cause. And I really wanted to just redirect a lot of my attention towards the side of sports that we don't hardly touch on um, and just try to, you know, create a network and a space for people to connect, but also for athletes and coaches and anybody else to come on and to share their story in a way that they've never shared it before. Um, and, and that was just my, that, that was just really my intention. And, you know, Kobe always said that sports is the greatest metaphor for life. And I, I just think that's the most important thing. Anytime I hop in a court and the times that I've coached, I've, I've always tried to use tennis as a way to teach my students, like, this is how you can apply it to life. Like, what you do on the tennis court is great and all that stuff, but what really matters is how you're able to apply these lessons um, to, to anything beyond the court, whether it's in a classroom or even after you're playing, as you become a young adult um, in the in the business world, that that to me was the most important thing to send to younger athletes. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I love it. So before we end, I'll ask you two uh, two fun questions. I put you on the spot a bit because we did not prep for this. At the uh, at the end of the day, who's going to have the most slams, uh, Roger, uh, Roger Novak or Rafa? I really am. Um, but the way things are going right now, uh, I would say it's going to be either Roth or Roger. I mean, they're only one and what one and three grand slams away from tying Roger at this point. Yeah. So yep. um, I just think Roger's time is running out. Father time right. is undefeated and all this. You know, um, of course, you know, there's Roger. He knows how to time everything and. And if there was ever a time for him to take time off, of course he ha- somehow does it when all this stuff is going on with the pandemic. Like, uh, okay, unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> I mean, does he get anything wrong? Does he do anything wrong? No, I mean, any decision. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, we won't. We won't make you pick. We. I, I hear. I feel the internal struggle right now. We won't make you make you make call. I will ask you one: Does Serena Williams win another slam? Yeah, I think she's going to. Okay. I think it's going to take some time, though. I think she, she definitely has it in her, and she's reached, what, four Grand Slam finals at this point and come short every single time. Right. Um, I think that some things are just going to have to evolve for her at this point. It's more of a personal journey. And personal journey, I just, I guess um, I'm just using my... Uh, my own journey and my comeback as, as reference, not comparing myself to Serena by any means, that's ridiculous. But it's more just like, she's got a lot going on. You know, she's later in her career. The passion may or may not be what it was. It's impossible to be at 30, 38 years old versus when you're 19 years old. And she's a mother. She's got a greater perspective on life. And when you have a bigger and greater perspective on life, sometimes it diminishes what you do as an athlete because you're like, I know there are bigger things besides this. But um, I think at this point, she, she can do it. It's just a matter of 
you know, really firing on, on all cylinders, physically, mentally, emotionally, and all that stuff. And as we have seen, especially on the women's side, that is not an easy thing to do. No, yeah. And, you know, uh, I, I'm looking forward to... <laughs> Continuing to listen to your project, and I know you've said you've already recorded uh, Andy Roddick. He's not, uh, I don't know when you're looking yeah. to release that, but we need, uh, Andre, if you're listening to this, hop on, hop on, because you have so much to uh, offer. So uh, if, uh, <laughs> right, for sure. With that, like you said, we're in a little bit of a crazy time right now. Um, be safe you and your family and, and all your friends and everyone that uh, you surround yourself and we'll, uh, we'll all get through this together and, and thank you so much for, for spending time talking about this project it's so great for sure thank you so much for having me on David and, and one, if, I, if you don't mind I'd like to promote the show um, this week we are actually going to turn the podcast into a video show because if there was ever time to check in with athletes and talk about life beyond and or after sport, it is now because there's a ton, like thousands of athletes just sitting around right now not being able to play or compete. And so we're going to, I really want to use my platform for a good cause here. So we're going to so keep your eyes peeled for that. For sure. Again, everyone is called The Next Chapter with Prim Shripapat, and uh, she's a superstar. Thank you so much, Prim. Thanks, David. I'll talk to you. There you have it. Hope you enjoyed that discussion with Prim. She's so great, and I just love, love the project that she's doing. So um, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, pretty much everywhere else you can um, where you listen to podcasts. And as always, stay tuned for another guest soon. Thank you. Thank you.